What's the one thing you want to do before you die? It's a cheerful question. It's also the subject of an art project by Brooklyn artist Nicole Kinney. She was motivated by the death of the Polaroid camera. Yeah, only an artist, right? Uh, so she started taking pictures with the Polaroid camera, decided to do that until the film ran out. They were stopping production. And so she would stop random people on the street, take a picture, ask them that question, then have them write their wish on that little white space on the bottom of the Polaroid. And then she was taking those pictures and then posting them on a wall to make the art project. And here's what the wall looks like. Her plan is to follow up with people in 20 years and see how they've done. It's kind of a cool art project. So you can go online and look at this project and some of the things that people have said are very fascinating. Some of the things are deep and you have to really think about them and you're impressed by what they say. One person said, before I die, I want to accept my flaws and insecurities. Another said, I want to be proud of myself. Or one said, I want to make my dad proud. I want to feel like I've made a valuable contribution. You have to think about this next one. Before I die, I want to have a long conversation with the last person breathing. Think about it. Some of you will get it on the way home. Um, so in other words, he'd be the last person alive on earth. Okay, so I'll help you kind of spoil the plot. Or I want, before I die, I want to ask forgiveness. Some cool stuff is on the site. Some of the stuff is really not very deep at all. You can picture them with a red solo cup in their hand as they say these things. Um, I want to be a millionaire. I want to learn to dance. I want to travel. That one's okay. I want to go to Ireland. I want to go to Egypt. One person said, I want to go to California. Really? That's the sum total of what you want to do in your life? Another person said, I want to rescue all the homeless poodles. Seriously? Really? Another overachiever said, I want to climb halfway up Mount Everest. <laughs> There's a life of mediocrity ahead for you, dude. And then there was Chelsea, the hospice patient, who, when asked, simply replied, I feel like I've done everything I wanted to do. What a great statement. You know, in a perfect world, our Polaroid would say that. You know, in a perfect world, knowing our life, when our life would end, wouldn't drastically change our behavior, would it? There wouldn't be a change in our lifestyle, our behavior, nothing would change in a perfect world. But I think for most of us, knowing that our life would end next Sunday or a month or a year from now would probably bring some changes to what we're going to do in our life. I think that's kind of the point that Moses was trying to make in Psalm 90. Yes, that's not an error. Moses wrote Psalm 90. I kind of picture Moses sitting up on a hill looking over the nation of Israel as they're getting ready to go into the promised land. We really don't know when he wrote the psalm, so my guess is as good as yours, and I have the microphone. Uh, but I picture Moses sitting on a hillside, looking out over the nation of Israel, reflecting on his life. 
being rescued from the bulrushes as a baby, being raised in Pharaoh's household, privileged lifestyle, kicked out of Egypt then, spending the next 40 years of his life herding sheep on a mountainside, having this dramatic encounter with God at a burning bush, being called to lead the nation of Israel out of captivity in Egypt, and then wandering in the desert for 40 years, and now sitting on the edge of the promised land, reflecting on his life and what a glorious adventure it had been, and all the stuff he would have missed if he hadn't listened to God. And saying in Psalm 90, verse 12, God, teach us to number our days and recognize how few they are and help us to spend them as we should. So how should we spend our days? How should we invest them? Whether we have a week, a month, a year, 40 years, 50 years of our life left, what would we do? I think there are some solid principles in Scripture that we can apply, no matter how much time we have left on this earth. And so let me just give you those principles to build your life on this morning. And let me just talk about them for a couple of minutes. I think the first one that I would say is this. I think it's intentional for us to match our commitments to our convictions. Even in a room with this many people, I think if we started talking about what our convictions in life are, I think there'd be some common threads running through the convictions we hold, no matter where you are in your walk with God. I think there are some common beliefs about who God is and how we should live our life. I think there would be some common convictions about family and family values, around work and a work ethic in our lives. The challenge isn't so much the convictions. The challenge is whatever convictions you hold, (laughs) at the end of the day, trying to get your commitments in life to line up with those. How I invest my resources, my time, my money, my energies. How do I get those to line up with my convictions in this crazy world? Because there are tons of different commitments that we make in our life. When you think about it, some of the commitments we make are really big, and they're easy to identify. Commitments like who we marry, where we're going to work, where we want to live, what kind of house we want to live in. When we list out the commitments in life, it's really easy to spot the big commitments. And usually we put a lot of thought into those, a lot of planning into those, usually. Now, there are some exceptions in a room this size. Uh, There are some people who would get married after just a few weeks of dating, right? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on this one. Uh, My parents were like that. I think my parents married after just dating for just a few months. Um, And it's worked out okay. They've been married over 50 years. Not every one of those relationships that gets started like that works out that way. There's just happened to. So it is the big commitments that really get us in trouble, usually. It seems like most often what gets us in trouble are the commitments that are simple and routine. least on the surface. They seem harmless enough when we make them. Things like when we're asked to volunteer for something in the community or the school or even at church. When our life is already overloaded, we get asked and it's like, yeah, that seems simple enough, and we jump in. could be a short-term project that we're asked to do at school uh, or at work. It could be 
something we took on six months ago at work that seems small enough, and it's just mushroomed, and it's like this beast that isn't going to let us go. On the surface, it looked simple enough. Could be you are a parent who has just signed your kids up for a sports team for the first time. It looked simple enough. And now you know that it would have been easier to give your life to a cult than it would be to be involved in sports teams. Uh, Simple routine commitments. I mean, when our kids were little, our son was about eight years old, and he decided that what he wanted most was an iguana. Cute little green lizard about this big. Simple routine commitment. Thank God we asked the pet store, what is it like to take care of an iguana? And this 18-year-old kid rolled his eyes and said, are you kidding me? Do you know the life expectancy of an iguana? Anybody know? It's like 40 or 50 years. This is a lifetime pet. I don't want my kids in the house that long, let alone this lizard. He said, where are you going to keep it? I said, well, I have an old 55-gallon aquarium sitting in the garage that, you know, we'll put it in that, make a terrarium out of it. He said, great, that'll last it for three months. He said, what? He said, iguanas, a male iguana? No, not that big, Lyle. They get six feet long. He said, in three months, it will outgrow a 55-foot aquarium, six feet long. Do you have a spare bedroom? Because that's what it's going to need. This is like taking on a child to raise. A lifetime pet, six feet long. And he said, oh, by the way, they need fresh fruit and vegetables every day. I said, I can't get my own kids to eat fresh fruit and vegetables. Simple, routine commitment, this long, grows six feet. You got routine commitments like that in your life? I can take an iguana back to the pet store. I can't do that with my kids. I tried. No, I didn't. Um, so it's those that get us in trouble. Then we have unspoken commitments. So you got big commitments, simple routine commitments. Then we have these unspoken commitments in our life. Things that just are in our schedule and we go, I didn't realize this would take so much time. And one of the easiest ones to point out is all of those screens that are in your life. Used to be we could just talk about TV screens. Now we have to add into that computer screens and tablets and cell phones and smartphones. It's all in one category now. And it's not that they're bad, but when you add together email and our favorite cable TV shows and words with friends and Pinterest, all of that eats into our time. It's a commitment. We never sit down and say, I'm going to dedicate X number of hours of my life to these, but they're an unspoken commitment that takes away more time from our lives. One writer said what we suffer from in America is something called commitment creep. And it's not a person, okay? It is, it is this thing that happens. Here's what it looks like. We wake up one day and find that our commitments, the big ones, the routine ones, the unspoken ones, have multiplied without our permission and even without our awareness. Our calendar is full of meetings and obligations we don't want with people and things we don't even like anymore. Our to-dos never seem to get done, and it starts to feel like we're living someone else's life, and we don't like it, but we don't know what to do. Can I get an amen? Thanks. So it all came from this side. You guys are all happy with your life over here. The Apostle Paul 
had this young man in his life called Tim, named Timothy. Paul never had kids, and Timothy became like a son to him. And so when you read Paul's letters to Timothy, there's a lot of fatherly wisdom there, as well as advice about ministry, uh, as Timothy was this young pastor. And in 1 Timothy 2, verse 16, Paul says to him, keep a close watch on how you live. He wasn't just saying, because you're a pastor, do this. He was talking to Timothy, if you read the surrounding verses, he was talking to Timothy about how you love people in your life, about your relationships. He was talking to him also about purity in his life, about his relationship with God, and about his work. He literally was talking to Timothy about all of his life. You have to keep a close watch on it, because all of your life will get out of control if you don't pay attention to it. It's great advice for me and for you. If we want to make our commitments match our convictions, then we have to periodically take inventory of our lives to make sure that what we're doing matches up with what we really believe in and value. Occasionally, we just have to ask ourselves, look at our calendar and go, why in the world am I still doing this stuff? Does it really still matter? Is it that important that I'm giving chunks of time to it? Last year, uh, towards the end of the year, I had one of those moments where I was doing that, and it wasn't because I'm a smart person and I intentionally said I'm going to look at my calendar. It was because I have a smart wife who looks at my calendar. And I got a request to do some outside speaking uh, at another church. And that was a routine part of my life for a long time. There was a point where I was working with churches and helping them, and I loved doing that. Uh, but there was a point where I was doing that 15 to 20 weekends a year along with all of the prep that went with that. I did it because I felt like God was asking me to do it, because I love to do it, and in part because it helped put my kids through private school and college. So Connie looked at my schedule last year, and she asked me, why are you still doing this? And I went, what do you mean? She said, kids have been done with college for five years. We're kind of done with that phase of our life. Why are you still doing this? What's the point behind it? You ever have one of those questions that kind of smacks you in the face and you go, why are you asking that? It's a great question. This year, I've done two. My life is a whole lot more sane, a whole lot more enjoyable, a whole lot happier. I don't think I'm ever going back to doing that many again, and I may at some point just quit doing them all together. Because I don't feel the same way as I did before. It was a commitment I was keeping, and I don't know why. So we have to ask ourselves those questions. We have to look at our life and go, why am I still doing things? And evaluate things. So as you go through your next week or month, ask yourself, what do I need to simply stop doing? And what do I need to start doing to make my commitments match up to my convictions in my life, my values. If you're married, it's a great idea to sit and talk with this, talk through this with your spouse. If you're not married, it's a great idea to find a trusted friend and talk through this together. Just a, a thought, in August, we're going to do a message series called Simple Revolution, and it's all about getting back to a simpler way of life that we all hunger for. So it's a four-week message series in August. 
And uh, we'll get more word to you about that. But one of those main points of that is getting simpler with our time and how we manage that. Uh, So we'll do more on that in August. Um, So examine your life, as Paul said to Timothy, and see if you need to realign your commitments to help him match your convictions. Second thing I do, if we're going to live like Moses encouraged us to do and spend our days wisely, is to forgive like we've been forgiven. It's about relationships in this life. Jesus clearly teaches us that forgiving others is not an option in this life. It's a requirement. It's one of the hardest teachings of Jesus in my life to live out on a daily basis. Dozens of times in Scripture, he talks about our need to forgive. Here's just two verses that smack me in the face every time I read them. In Matthew 6, he says, If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't, if you refuse to forgive others, then your Father in heaven will not forgive your sins. It doesn't get much clearer than that. Then in Luke uh, chapter 17, just a second. Pages out of order. There it is. In Luke 17, uh, Jesus says, if you see your friend going wrong, correct him. And the, the point of that verse is about a personal thing between you and him. So if he's doing something and you correct him, And he responds, forgive him. Even if it's a personal thing that he's doing. And it's repeated seven times throughout the same day. And seven times he comes to you and says, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. Forgive him. That's a hard teaching. This is a friend. Seven times in the same day does exactly the same thing to you. And seven times gives the same lame apology. I'm sorry, I promise I won't do it again. Jesus says, forgive him. Forgive her. That's hard. It's one of the hardest teachings of Jesus. What he's trying to teach us is, you need to forgive in the same way that God forgives you. How many times do you come to God the same day and say, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. And you do it again. It is so hard of a teaching that when the disciples hear it, They look back at Jesus and go, Jesus, we're going to need a lot more faith. (laughs) Kind of like those guys in the monster movies. When they see the monster for the first time, they duck back around the corner, lean against the wall and go, we're going to need a bigger gun. (laughs) Disciples hear this and they go, Jesus, we're going to need a lot more faith if that's what you're asking us to do. Forgiveness is hard. I won't lie. It's hard for me in my life. And I'm guessing it's hard for you. But I think we make it harder sometimes than it has to be because we don't fully understand what Jesus teaches about forgiveness, what it is, what it isn't. So let me clarify some misunderstandings. First, forgiveness is not the same as forgetting. When you've been wounded and you need to forgive someone, it doesn't mean that the memory is wiped clean. That's not possible. Time may soften the edges of the pain, but the memory will still be there. Forgiveness doesn't always remove the consequences of what the person did. You need an example of that. Go back to First and Second Samuel in the Old Testament. Read the life of David. David loved God deeply, did some horrible things in his life, 
There were multiple instances in David's life where God said, I forgive you, but the consequences remained. Sometimes those consequences in people's lives are personal. Sometimes those consequences are legal. It doesn't always mean when you forgive them that the consequences are removed. Forgiveness doesn't bring about instant healing. You may forgive them but still feel hurt. That takes time to heal. And the deeper the hurt, the longer it may take for your feelings of being hurt to go away. It doesn't negate those feelings. And forgiveness doesn't restore the same relationship you had with that person. Sometimes when you're hurt deeply, the relationship is broken, and it may never return to the same place it was before. In fact, I seldom see that happen. When forgiveness is extended and received, the relationship may be stronger, or it may, in fact, never be restored. It's just the truth. But the relationship and the trust, whatever happens, will take time to rebuild if it ever is going to be rebuilt. And whatever comes of that, it will never be exactly the same as it was before. To be a forgiving person does mean a few things and does ask a few things of us. It means that we need to extend forgiveness to the other person before we feel they deserve it. Because I promise you, you will never feel they deserve forgiveness. Seldom does anyone feel, do we ever feel that someone deserves forgiveness. Just like we don't deserve forgiveness from God. So we have to make the difficult choice in our lives to forgive. It's a choice to forgive. When we forgive, we do so expecting nothing in return. Nothing. Now, there's a human side of us that when we get ready to forgive someone, what we want is we want them to own their part. We want them to apologize in return. We want them to confess, to say what they did wrong to us. When we really forgive, as the Bible talks about, we have to let that go. Because it may never happen. We forgive. And don't expect anything in return, because they may not be there. Don't expect any actions, don't expect any words, just forgive. And it's to our benefit to do that as quickly as possible. Because holding on to the pain, holding on to the hurt, really doesn't serve any purpose in our life. When you hold on to that pain, it's like reaching into a hot fire and grabbing a coal to throw at somebody to hurt them. When you do that, Who's the person that's going to get burned? It's you. Holding on to the pain and not forgiving doesn't teach the other person a lesson. Doesn't make them any better. Doesn't make you any better. It only controls you. It only hurts you. And let me be clear. I'm not saying any of this is easy. And I have been deeply, deeply wounded in my life been to the place where the Bible talks about wailing, that kind of crying that comes from here that you just can't stop when you've been hurt. So I know what that's like. 
But what I'm asking us to do is to stop bottling up the hurt and the pain and holding it in and begin to become the forgiving people that the Bible asks us to be. Because when we don't forgive, it affects all of our relationships in our life, including, the Bible says, our relationship with God. And when we do the opposite and we become a forgiving people, it radically changes who we are. Third, if we're going to spend our days as we should, I, and I would encourage you, I want to know Jesus deeply. Deeply. In Matthew 7, there's a passage, and there are four words in it that jump out at me from these verses. The passage says, On judgment day, many will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform many miracles in your name. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you who break God's laws. There are four words in there that leap off the screen at me. It's when Jesus says, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. And I think that that's the biggest risk that I face and we face in our society is that we can be so busy, so active, doing so many things, religious things, churchy things, that we don't know Jesus. Not really love Jesus. Not have a relationship with him. And honestly, I think that's the most important business to take care of before we die. To know Jesus, not just the facts about him, but to know him deeply. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, I want to know Jesus. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and to participate in his sufferings, to become like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul basically was saying, if there's something to be known about Jesus, I want to know it all. Everything. So the question then is, how do you get to know Jesus? And it's not like you can text him and hang out at Starbucks. I wish you could. I wish I could. How do you get to know him? Back in April... We did this spiritual life survey. Some of you took the survey, by the way, and thank you for doing that. The survey has been given over the last uh, five, six, seven years to 250,000 people across the United States. And it's fascinating, the results of the survey, when you dig into the research and read that. I'm nerdy that way. I like that kind of stuff. It's fascinating when you find the results of that, and it says... In it, the number one thing that has helped people grow, the number one thing that has helped people get to know Jesus more deeply, people just like you and me, no matter where they are in their walk, whether they're just exploring a relationship with Jesus or they've been in a relationship with Jesus for decades. You, know, you read that and you go, okay, okay, this is going to be great research. Two hundred quarter of a million people have taken the survey. I want this is fascinating. Got to be some groundbreaking research. You read the result and you go, duh. Really? What is it? Hmm. Spending time 
reading the Bible. I went, really? How much money was spent to find that? Read the Bible. And yet, it's great to find out that it's that simple and accessible to know Jesus. Moment of honesty as I read that this week. Reading the Bible's foreign to a lot of us. I mean, we grew up in homes where the Bible was never read. I did. Did you? The Bible was never read in my home, and I grew up in a Christian home. We had Bibles everywhere. There were tons of Bibles, probably 20, 30 Bibles in our home. We never read the Bible. And that was evidenced by the fact that when Sunday rolled around, there was this mad scramble for everybody to find their Bible to take to church, so it looked like we used our Bible on Sundays. We just didn't read it. So if you grew up not reading the Bible and you want to develop a relationship with Jesus, where do you start? In fact, I've had several people I've met with over the last three or four weeks who've asked me that very same question. I don't even know where to start reading the Bible to build this relationship with Jesus. So I don't want to get real workshoppy this morning, but I thought I'll just quickly share with you what I shared with them. If it's helpful, great. If it's not, this will be quick and painless. Um, if you, this is my Bible. If you still read out of an ink and paper Bible, great. If you have one, great. I would say I would start in one of two places. I'd start in the book of Mark in the New Testament. It's one of the Gospels. And just start to read there about the life of Jesus. And if you don't start there, start in the book of James which is like the book of Proverbs in the New Testament. And it's just some simple, simple, practical wisdom about how to live our lives. And if you don't know where those are, there's an index in the front of your Bible, and you can just look, and it'll tell you the page number, and you can flip there. Read a few verses, begin to read, and it will help you to think about how to live your life, and it will help you in your relationship with Jesus. Now, for me... I don't read out of a paper Bible anymore. I don't read paper books anymore. I switched over to electronic media. And I don't know how many of you have done that. But um, I've talked about this up here, and I'm just going to do five quick screenshots up on the screen just to help you with this. So I do my devotions on my iPad. This works on your computer. It works on your iPad. It works on your phones. And a little program called Uversion on the computer. Looks just like this. This is straight off my computer. So the Bible is there. Uh, it's really easy to use. Uh, next slide. So you just hit those buttons uh, on the left. The books of the Bible come down. You don't have to know where they are. You can just scroll through, and then you can click on the chapter number, the verse number, and you can go right through the Bible. Next slide. Um, and there are multiple translations. So at the top are the Message, the New Living Translation, and the New International Version. Those are the ones that we use most often when we're teaching on the stage here. What's really cool about it, you see the little uh, speaker with the, the thing beside them on the far right side? Say yes, because you do. If you don't like to read, you can click that and it will read the Bible to you. So you can just sit back and have the Bible read to you. Uh, and it's this great, uh, sexy, deep male voice. Uh, I don't know why that was important, but I felt like I should say it. Um, 
So you can have the Bible read to you. There are about 30 or 40 translate, or, uh, versions, English versions of the Bible. And if you have friends who don't speak English, there are over 100 translations that are in there uh, in other languages. And so it's just an amazing resource in that regard. Next slide. There are reading plans, devotional plans in there so that it will come to you on a daily basis as an email saying, hey, this is your, this is your passage to read for today. Simple plans that would take you through a book of the Bible or would have devotional thoughts. If you like The Purpose Driven Life with Rick Warren, he has a half-year devotional plan that would just have some encouraging thoughts and then would be tied to a few Bible verses so that you could read that and follow through, and it's laid out for you, so that you do one day, and then you complete it, and the next days will show up for you, or it would show up here when you go online to it. And it's, the address is up at top. It's uversion, youversion.com. So there's multiple reading plans for devotions, for issues, if you're struggling with anger or depression or loneliness or you want joy in your life. Next slide. And then you can see it's available on the iPhone, the Android, the BlackBerry, Windows phones, mobile, on your computer, on your Kindle. And the best part about it is I make $10 every time you download it. <laughs> the best part is it's absolutely free. This is done by a church in Oklahoma. It's absolutely free. You take this with you, and while your kids are warming up for that Little League game, you can sit and read your Bible if you're sitting alone. You can do it on the train. You can wherever if you do this on your uh, iPhone or if you do it on your BlackBerry or wherever you want to do it. So it, it is an incredible tool to help you dig into the Word. And if you need help, ask your kids to help you install it. <laughs> Here's the point. The point is not what you use. The point is to spend time in the Word, in the Bible, it's the main thing to help you get to know Jesus, to break through, if you're questioning Jesus, to break through what others have said, the hearsay, the rumors. And start simply. Don't start off necessarily saying, I'm going to do this every day. Start off saying, I'm going to do this three days a week. Make it doable in your life. Start with a simple, easy plan and watch your faith grow. Let me bring this to a close. One of my favorite writers is Anne Lamott. And she is, I just love to read her writing. She's definitely not for everybody. Um, but recently she said, if we're left to our own devices in this life, then we're going to seek out the things of this world. We're going to seek out fame and wealth and possessions and good looks and power. Because we tend to think that those are the things that are going to bring us happiness and fulfillment. And then she writes, but all of this really turns out to be just a joke because they're just props. And when we check out of this life, we have to give them back to the great prop master in the sky. They are just on loan. They're not really ours. I don't know about you, but I don't want to spend whatever time I have left on this earth just accumulating and shuffling props. I want to invest it as wisely as I can. I want to make sure that all of my resources are matched up to my convictions, the things that I hold dear. 
I want to keep my relationships on track and forgive as quickly as I can. Not hold on to the anger and waste a single day with that. And I want to know Jesus as deeply as I can. If I can do those three things, just those three, then I think at the end of my life, I will be able, like Chelsea, that hospice patient who wrote on her Polaroid, I'll be able to say just like she did, I've done everything that I wanted to do.